So what I want to do this morning and then next Sunday as well is give you 13 practical steps to make the most of, out of your Bible study, uh, to make the, the study that you will do hopefully a, a, a more invigorated, intense study than you've ever done before, how to make the most of that. And some of these uh, steps that I'm going to recommend, maybe you're already doing them, uh, maybe some of them you haven't been. And so for others, uh, perhaps this will be something fresh and new, and this will help you take it to the next level. So as we uh, uh, begin, let's look to the Lord and ask Him that as we think through this, as we go through this study this morning, uh, this would not just be an academic exercise, but it would really give us an opportunity to examine our approach to God's Word and how we can improve that as we hunger and thirst for Him, as He's revealed Himself in His Word. Let's look to Him and ask Him to teach us. Now, Father, as we uh, settle our hearts now and consider the topic of the study of Your Word, You have ended us to long for it and to live by it. And so as we go through this study this morning, teach us, we ask that you would reveal to us the the areas in which we are lacking, the areas which a greater passion and hunger than ever to know your word, to read it, and to have it dwell within us. And we ask this for your glory's sake and for our own good. Amen. As I said, I want to give you 13 practical steps uh, as to how to improve your Bible study and make it more fruitful in your own life. But before we get into those, I would pose this question, why is accurate Bible study necessary? Why why isn't it just enough to just open the Bible and begin reading? In fact, in, in many cases, as we think of those around us, we would wish that they would have a Bible open in front of them at some point and do something with the Bible. So isn't that enough? Isn't it enough simply just to open the covers, to have the pages? Why is accurate Bible study, why is careful Bible study necessary? I think there's a good response that is given by a writer by the name of Bernard Ram. And I'd like to read his response to this question when he wrote this. To determine what God has said is a high and holy task. With fear and trembling, each should be ever so careful of that which he has adopted as his method of biblical interpretation. Upon the correct interpretation of the Bible rests our doctrine of salvation, of sanctification, of eschatology, and of Christian living. It is our solemn responsibility to know what God has said with reference to each of these. And this can be done only if we have carefully, thoroughly, and systematically formulated that system of the native or original meaning of the Bible. Further, we need to know the correct method of biblical interpretation so that we do not confuse the voice of God with the voice of man. In every one of those places where our interpretation is at fault, we have made substitution of the voice of man for the voice of God. We need to know hermeneutics thoroughly, if for no other reason than to preserve us from the folly and errors of faulty principles 
of understanding. End quote. He has summarized very well why we need to give time and consideration to our approach to the Bible. And I'd like to challenge you over these next two weeks, even throughout the week, not just in the mornings here on Sundays, to think of your approach to the Bible. As pointed out, when we approach it incorrectly, we substitute the voice of God for the voice of man. In fact, let me, as we begin, turn to a text of Scripture which shows us that an improper approach can actually yield great harm. And the text is Matthew 4, and you're familiar with this, but in Matthew chapter 4, you have the account of the temptation of Jesus. The beginning of Jesus' ministry, he is led by the Spirit into the wilderness, and he is tempted there by the devil. And what is interesting in this account is that Matthew records for us what happened in the interaction between the devil and, and Jesus. And in every one of these cases, the tempter does not use worldly philosophies, but and the tempter came to him and said, if you are the son of God, command these stones to become bread. But he answered and said, it is written... My man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple. And he said to them, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written. He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, so that you will not strike your foot against a stone." And Jesus said to him, on the other hand, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to a test. Satan tempts him once again, and Jesus again responds from the word of God. But as we can see here is that Satan himself will use the words of Scripture, and we must not fall into that. Our approach to Scripture is very, very important as it relates to discerning whether we are actually hearing the voice of God or our own voice is the voice of man. Paul in 2 Timothy gave Timothy this very, this very strong exhortation. As, as t- Paul prepared for his departure, and, and he gave to Timothy this last set of commands, his last will and testament, one of the important exhortations that that, uh, that Paul gives to Timothy is this. In chapter 2, verse 15, he says, Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed. And how do you do that? It's found in the last clause. Accurately handling the word of truth. We don't have time to look there, but if you would look in the exhortation, are examples of those who have become fixated on things that are contrary to the word of God or have twisted the word of God. And in the midst of that black backdrop, Paul gives Timothy this exhortation to show yourself approved to God by accurately handling the word of God. It is of utmost importance. And then you look at a text like James chapter 3, which focuses, begins a focus in James 3 on the use of the tongue. And and you know that chapter well. It is filled with rich imagery about the tongue and how much harm can come from our speech, our words. But at the very beginning of that chapter, 
the, the writer James here focuses on the use of the tongue, the use of speech as it relates to teachers. Again, emphasizing the importance of knowing that as such, we will incur a stricter judgment. Now, why is that? Just being a teacher means you're going to be judged more? Well, yeah, but there's a reason for that, and that's because teachers, particularly in the context of the church here, teachers are the ones who explain, who teach, who instruct from the Word of God. And a slip here and a misinterpretation there brings upon the teacher stricter judgment. These verses and many others show us just how serious, how important is our approach to the Word of God, and we must give it careful consideration. And this is especially a good time as we begin new reading plans for the year to think, how should I approach the Word of God in a way that would lead me to be a workman who is not ashamed, in a way that would lead me not to be under strict God to others? Like I said, I want to give you 13 practical steps. We'll cover maybe seven of them this morning and the rest next Sunday. And then after that, we'll get into our study again of 1 Thessalonians. But first, here, number one. Number one, this is where it all begins. It begins with an acknowledgement of our need for truth. Number one, acknowledge your need for truth. This is not the, the reading of Scripture, your reading plan, whatever it is that you have in, in, in your desire and your resolution to work your way through the scriptures, and there are many different plans, and it's not one, one size is for everyone. Everyone will have their own unique need, but it must begin not just with a ritualistic uh, effort. It can't begin simply by this desire to do some kind of good work and check off a, a box every day to say, I've done the end of every month and at the end of the year. It must begin with this fundamental acknowledgement that we need truth. The faithful study of Scripture, a study of Scripture that will honor the Lord, the ultimate author of Scripture, will begin, will flow out of a deep conviction that we need God's Word. We need it. We must live by it. Our pastor, Pastor John, in a nice book, which I would recommend, the book is called How to Get the Most from God's Word, He writes this, half-hearted Bible study is a bore. If you come to the scriptures legalistically, ritualistically, or because you are intimidated by your peers or your pastor, you won't get much out of it. What you need is a hunger in your heart, a passion. I I hesitate to recommend any any particular approach, because sometimes the response is, well, if I do that approach, I can please my pastor. If I do that approach, I can then, uh, I, I can then hang around with others who are doing the same thing. If I do that approach, that's what will make me a good church member. But that's not what it's about. It is about this passion for knowing God's word, and that is what is paramount. Another writer writes this, get a will behind the eye, a will behind the eye, and the eye becomes a searchlight. The familiar is made to disclose undreamed treasure. We must begin with the recognition of our need for truth, 
must begin with cultivating of God. Notice how Moses describes this, and this actually ties into the text of Matthew 4, as Jesus quoted this text in his response to the temptations of Satan. In Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3, we read this, He humbled you, God did. God humbled you, and he's speaking to the Israelites as they had wandered for 40 years in the wilderness and now are ready to enter the promised land. God humbled you and let you be hungry and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you understand that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by everything that proceeds out of the mouth of the Lord. Now that reality is something that is very familiar to us. If we ask ourselves the question, what do I need to live in 2022? If we ask ourselves the question, and most of us would, if we're being transparent, would say, well, if I would answer that question before I came here this morning, or if I would have answered the question yesterday, I would have said, well, I need a certain salary to support uh, the, the cost of living here in California and the 7% inflation rate. I need this, and I need this, and I need this. Our worldview is so materialistic that we will prioritize these material needs far above the scriptures. And that was the problem of the Israelites as they were redeemed from Egypt and then spent their years grumbling in, in the wilderness. We need to recognize that same fleshly tendency in us and say, no, live by everything that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Does that define your view of 2022? Does that define your understanding of what lies ahead in the year to come? The psalmist in Psalm 119, this great psalm that is written in reflection of the wonderful treasure we have in God's law, the psalmist writes this, I opened my mouth wide and panted, for I longed for your commandments. I opened my mouth wide and panted, for I longed for your commandments. And we know that with the psalmist, this is not just some kind of ritualistic approach. It's not some kind of hyperbole. This When you read all of Psalm 119, you realize this is what really opens his mouth as one who is parched, longing to be be given that life-giving water, and he longs for the commandments of God. In the New Testament, we come across a text like 1 Peter 2, 1 Peter 2.2, which says this, like newborn babies... Long for the pure milk of the word, so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation. This is what is to mark us. This is where it all begins. Now, for some, this first, this first step is, is actually the most important. You may look on your life and you may have never really truly experienced that kind of longing, and this is where it all begins. Never mind the, the, the specific reading plans for now. This is where things need to be. And what do you do if you've noticed that there's just not that hunger there? 
It's just not as strong as it should be. It hasn't really impacted your life. Where, what do you do? Well, the thing to do is to pray for it. That is, a, that is a request made to the Father that you know is in accordance with His will. And He will long, He desires to grant that prayer. So begin praying that God would give you the kind of, the kind of desire that Peter speaks of and the kind of desire that the psalmist in Psalm 119 speaks of. Lord, give me this hunger that I would know that I cannot live I cannot live 2022 and I cannot live a day without your word. Lord, give that desire to me. Number two. First, it begins with the record. We begin our reading at whatever time of the day, in whatever process that you have as you're moving through the scriptures or portions of the scriptures. This second step is, is key and it's something that we again, quite frequently forget. We want to get right down to it. We want to get right into the text. But here is a very important step, and it's this pray for divine assistance. As you open the scriptures and begin to read, your your first thought should be, Lord, help me. Lord, give me the eyes to see what is in your law. And here's the principle behind that. The faithful study of Scripture is possible only by the enablement of God. Now, we could talk about this in a very black and white kind of situation. A text like 1 Corinthians 2, verse 14 says, The natural man, for the unbeliever, when he opens the Bible, he may understand the the parts of speech that are on the page. He, He may understand basic uh, grammar rules and so on, but to him, the message on the page of Scripture is, is, is foolishness. It's not true. He doesn't welcome it, Paul says. But those who are regenerate, they have been given that ability. They now have the ability to open the Scriptures and to actually comprehend what is written therein. Now, that isn't a very black and white category of, of uh, the, the uh, inability to understand on the part of unbelievers and the ability to understand on the part of believers. But even on the part of believers, we can never think that just because I've been regenerated, now I just go about my effort. Now I just, now I just employ my own principles, my own practices, and I just get busy. The answer to that is, of course, no. Even as those who have been regenerate, regenerated, we are still dependent upon the enablement of God for the right understanding of the Scriptures. In this case, prayer to God directly acknowledges our dependency upon Him as the ultimate author of Scripture. Scripture has been breathed out by Him. He is the originator of the words on the page that have come to us through holy men of God. And prayer as we begin each time of reading, acknowledges our dependency as we say, Lord, open my eyes. Again, Pastor John, in his book, How to Get the Most from God's Word, says this, No Christian should ever look down at the Word without first looking up at the very source of the Word and asking for guidance. i you a couple of texts, again, from Psalm 119, which show us that here we have the the psalmist, a man who fears God, he's truly regenerate. 
He, he knows the Lord, and yet as he has the scrolls unrolled in front of him, the scrolls of the law, he is, he is beseeching God to give him understanding. Notice, for example, verse 18 of Psalm 119, Open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. In verse 34, he writes this, Give me understanding that I may keep your law and observe it with my whole heart. Verse 73, your hands made me and fashioned me. Give me understanding that I may learn your commandments. Verse 116, understanding according to your word. You can picture the the psalmist as he has these old scrolls unrolled before him. And as he is reading, as he begins to read, and as he continues to read, He is both reading the words on the page and at the same time simultaneously beseeching God that God would grant him the right understanding of what he reads. Now, in light of that, we must be careful never to pit prayer against Bible reading. I remember one time hearing a a preacher say that if he was marooned on, on an island somewhere and he had to choose between one of two things, either prayer or the Bible, he said he would choose prayer any day. And, and I thought at the time that that doesn't say a false dichotomy. God's word is his speech to us. Prayer is, is our speech to him. Those two things can never be pitted against one another because in all reality, our speech to God is when it, when it is Honoring to the Lord, it is merely a reflection of what he has already revealed to us as we pray in response to revealed knowledge. We cannot pit those things together. And it's not that we need to have 15 minutes of reading the Bible and 15 minutes of prayer as if they have to be separate disciplines. Not at all. You can see it even here in the psalmist's writing that these things are joined together. These things are, are, are melded together. They, they, they dare not be separated. And so as you read, you pray. And as you pray, seminary, he wrote this. He said, sometimes we hear it said that 10 minutes on your knees will give you a truer, deeper, more operative knowledge of God than 10 hours over your books. What is the appropriate response? than 10 hours over your books, on your knees? Why should you turn from God when you turn to your books or feel that you must turn from your books in order to turn to God? If learning and devotion are as antagonistic as that, then the intellectual life is in itself accursed and there can be no question of a religious life for a student, even of theology. Now, what he's describing here is is the picture of seminary students who have so dichotomized prayer and and the study of the Bible with all their books that that they think of these two things as two separate things. And they are. In that case, we we are approaching Scripture correctly. We We are to do the two things at once. Pray for divine assistance. Number three. As you move on from there, choose the right translation. 
Choose the right translation. Now, the principle here is this. The faithful study of Scripture is built upon the use of an accurate translation. Now, again, when you talk with many Christians, the general idea can sometimes be, well, as long as it's some translation of the Bible, that's fine. It really doesn't matter. Well, the answer to that question is actually it matters a whole lot more than what you think. For example, while paraphrases can be useful for those who are barely uh, general translation of the Bible that tries to avoid technical terms that are in Scripture by giving them very, very simple definitions or simple translations, those kinds of paraphrases can be helpful for those who are barely literate or for those who may have never had any exposure to the Bible before. They, they really don't know the, the, the message, the redemptive flow of Scripture. It's all foreign to them, and, and, and you need to acquaint them with the big picture. In that case, a paraphrase can be helpful. But when it comes to detailed Bible study done by Christians who, who are already growing in the faith and, and want to dig deeper, paraphrases are not helpful. What you want is a a literal translation that will reflect as closely as possible in the English language what those original writers, alarming doctrines being taught in certain certain churches in, in different places. Let's say, let's take the continent of Africa, and sometimes you'll hear of of some pretty alarming things being taught in in churches there, and we'll say, Well, how did that ever happen? And one of the reasons why that has happened has been because in the effort to translate scriptures quickly into foreign languages, needy languages, very quick translations have been made, paraphrases. And then it's as if translators checked off the box and said, well, we've got the Bible in that other language. Yeah, the translation isn't so good, but you know what? That really doesn't matter. They've got the Bible Let's move on, and they'll move on, and they'll leave to the the resulting church that forms there, they'll leave to that church a a paraphrase. And then the believers in that, the leaders will teach from that paraphrase, and that paraphrase can contain some pretty bad inaccuracies, and then you compound that, and over a while you can understand why those churches are in the state of things they are. That is often because of bad translations. So when it comes to your own study, what you want to do is make sure you have the translation that is most faithful in reflecting the style and the wording of the original. And in addition to the translation that you choose to do your regular reading, also pick another one or two. This is helpful. Pick another one or two other reliable translations that you can consult from time to time especially when you start getting down deeper into certain texts. If you choose a particular chapter that you want to study, you want to study it in depth. This chapter early uh, this morning, the first service, Pastor John is, is uh, now in Ephesians 4, and you want, to, you want to make that your chapter for the next month, let's say. Take another two or three, or one or two even, good translations, and as you work through the text, we're going to get into this a little bit more next Sunday, do some comparison. I'll explain that a little bit later in detail next Sunday. Now, just a, an overview here. When we talk about translations, some, 
so, some basic ideas or, or, or rules or a paradigm for understanding how to, how to judge a, a translation. There's basically a spectrum of translations moving in two different directions. On the one hand, which is on your left, on the one hand, you have uh, what, is, what we would say would be word for word. Those are the literal translations. The author, his style of writing, the vocabulary he uses, and they put the author of the biblical text as the, 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 the key point for the standard. On the other side, and this would be on your right-hand side, you have the paraphrases. The paraphrases are not motivated by the author and his style. They're motivated by the reader. And paraphrases typically set as, as their goal a target audience. Whom do they want to reach? Maybe it's the, the, the millennials. Maybe it's this cultural category or that cultural category. And, and they will look to that audience as the departure, the point of departure, the starting point, and then go back to the Bible and seek to render the Bible in a language that is familiar to the audience. That's really what drives a how that could lead to some pretty bizarre things. In fact, there was a Bible that had been promoted for a little while. I think it was, was it the Gen Z Bible? Horrible. And, 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 and you, you kind of laugh at the name, and then you start to read. They, they, people had posted different parts of the Bible, and I remember reading some section out of John chapter 1, and it was horrible. All because they sought to come up with a language that would appeal to a typical Gen Zer. Uh, so when you look at this, what you want to do for your Bible study is avoid that. You're not the starting point for Bible study. The Word of God must be. So choose a literal translation. And as you look up uh, at this spectrum here, on the left-hand side, which are the word-for-word translations, the literal translations today, number one, would obviously be the Legacy Standard Bible that has, is just coming out now, and I think you can already get copies uh, in the, the bookstore the New American Standard Bible, which has been used here for decades, uh, and it's what is, is used in most of the, the Sunday school classes here on Sunday mornings, and then the English Standard Version. And you can see on this chart that these are right along the word-for-word, word, in the word-for-word word category, the, the legacy being just a little bit more consistently literal than, than the, the NASB, all right? Number four, number four, read the whole book. Read the whole book. So you begin by acknowledging your need for truth. You must hunger for it. Number two, you, you, you then begin the actual process with the prayer for divine assault book. Uh, the, the current culture in which we live is, is, is certainly not a good reading culture. And that is, for various reasons, the failure of many public schools to actually teach children how to read, the very atrocious attention rates among younger people today, you know, little three-minute, seven-minute blocks is all people want to spend their attention on. Uh, You have the the Twitter, you know, the 160 characters or however many it is, just these little sound bites. 
Uh, and, and you have things like even the one-minute Bible. You can actually go out and buy a one-minute Bible so that you can have one minute a day where you get some truth from Scripture in scriptural form. And, and that's very, very popular in this kind of a culture. And that has created all kinds of problems among Christians in their understanding of the Bible. If you're going to take that approach, a faithful understanding of who God is, an accurate understanding of his will for your life, you're going to fail in that. The, the, book, the Bible isn't a magic book where you just, you just string together these, these words and these verses and, and treat it as some kind of magical incantation. It isn't. It is a piece of literature, and we have to approach it the right way. And the principle here is this. The faithful study of Scripture is built upon a commitment to read and to study entire books not just isolated texts. Entire books, not just isolated text. Indeed, there are times when perhaps you are faced with some kind of challenge or some kind of need in your life, and you'll approach the Scriptures in a slightly different way. For example, maybe you're going through a particular trial, and what you need are, are, are all comfort. And in that case, there's certainly a place for for moving quickly and, and, and searching for those special promises given to those who are hurting. There is a place for that, and I, I don't, I don't want I, I to deny that. And it may be, too, that you're struggling with a particular doctrine. I remember as, as a young man, I struggled with the doctrine of election and trying to understand that. And so for a period of my life, in my teen years, I gave myself to tracing through the, the words and, and the, the texts of Scripture that deal specifically with that doctrine. There's a time for that. But as a general practice in Bible study, you want to focus on reading through entire books. One of the most common errors made by well-intentioned Christians is to use biblical texts without any consideration for their context. You, you'll be anxious and, and desirous to use God's Word in your conversation with others. Someone will ask you a question, or someone will talk about a need that they have, a problem that they're dealing with, and, and you want to have a response that is biblical. That is admirable. That is right. But sometimes the end will cause us to justify all kinds of unworthy means. And sometimes that means taking a verse out of context or a couple of verses out of context and, and putting them where they, they really don't belong. And the solution to that is to read whole books at a time and to, to connect your understanding of your favorite verses, your favorite passages with the surrounding context and even with the book as a whole. Maybe some of you have heard this motto before. I can do all things through a verse taken out of context. Right, Verse 13, where that verse, I, I remember when I graduated from high school, I got a couple of graduation cards that had that on there. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. And you know, by that time, I had started to grow as a, as a young Christian. I realized, hmm, does that mean I can become an astronaut? You know, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. Christ is going to let me become an astronaut or make me become an astronaut or the, or the president of, of this company or, or what have you. No, that's not what the text is saying, and in the context there of Philippians 4, it's dealing with the issues of different circumstances in life. This commitment to read texts 
individual texts, passages, paragraphs, as dependent upon the books in which they are found is based upon the simple rule that we should read the literature of the Bible consistent. That seems so axiomatic, and yet how often is that ignored, right? Think of Philippians. Think of Paul's letter to the Philippian church. Did Paul just one day just take a piece of scroll or take a scroll or a piece of parchment, piece of papyrus, and, and just write, you know, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. And then later on, he comes back and adds a few more words here and there and slowly starts to fill it in, but without any intention of, being, uh, of, of having any flow, of, of piecing this all together in, a, in an ongoing process. No, of course not. When Paul sat down to write Philippians, there is, he was under house arrest in Rome. He got the papyrus that he needed and got the ink and, and, and began to write Paul, a prisoner. And he begins to write, and he writes as he goes through. He begins, all of it is part of his message to the Philippian church. Or you think of Moses in the book of Deuteronomy. As he records that book, again, he, he doesn't do a few verses here and a few verses there and, 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 and just kind of string it together. No, there is a process to it. It's one consistent flow of thought. Now, if that is how the books of the Bible have been written, why should we not read them that way? Why should we not read them that way? Now, an important connection to this is the issue of, of context. It is this reading through entire books of the Bible that gives us context. Well, how, how do we define context? What is context? Well, context comes from two Latin words, con, meaning together, and textus, meaning woven. So the word textus, textile industry. Think of that. Together. So the word context has that idea. Context means that which is woven together. And the Bible has context. It's not, individual verses do not appear in a vacuum. There is, there's a context to it. Every sentence that we read is, is woven into surrounding sentences, and those surrounding sentences are woven into paragraphs, and those paragraphs are woven into major arguments of a, of a writer, and those major arguments are woven into a, into a literary piece. The book of Deuteronomy, or Matthew, or Philippians. But a text that is taken out of context, a text where the threads are snipped and the, and, and the pieces is taken out of that fabric, that becomes a pretext for inserting your own pre-understanding. The more to remember, the more you interpret out of context, the more you interpret according to convenience. Let's face it, that's why we like to do that. That's why we we like an approach that just allows us one day to read a little bit here, the next day here, or to jump around. It is very convenient. It's a very convenient way to make the Bible fit my circumstances and make the Bible speak to me the way that I want it to. That's what it means to read out of context. But when you are committed to reading whole books at a time, you're putting the author and God's plan for that book 
for what it will achieve, what it is to accomplish in your life, you're putting that as the priority and you're taking your needs, what you want to hear for that particular day, you're setting them in the passenger seat. And you're saying, that have for this moment is to understand God better. That's what is most important. When writer Roy Zuck has said this, disregarding the context is one of the greatest problems in Bible interpretation. And then he went on and said this, every basic cult is based on ignoring the context. And we can think of several of them. And some of us may have even come out of those kinds of backgrounds where whatever cult you might have been involved in, it's not that they never used the Bible. It's that they used it out of context. And it, it, it seemed to have this power. It, it seemed to be based on a divine word, but it was always a word taken out of context. And by doing that, those churches were able to deceive many. Let me give you some instruction from the scriptures. He, he writes this. For another thing, read all of the Bible and read it in an orderly way. I fear there are many parts of the word which some people have never read at all. This is to say, at the least, a very presumptuous habit. All scripture is profitable, 2 Timothy 3.16 says. To this habit may be traced the lack of well-proportioned views of truth, which is so common in this day. Some people's Bible reading is a system of perpetual dipping and picking. They do not seem to have an idea of regularly going through the whole book. This also is a great mistake. No doubt, in times of sickness and affliction, it is allowable to search out seasonable, by far the best plan to begin the Old Testament and New Testaments at the same time, to read each straight through to the end and then begin again. This is a matter in which everyone must be persuaded in his own mind. I can only say it has been my own plan for nearly 40 years, and I have never seen cause to alter it. End quote. Now, what he is saying here even is not just read individual books in their whole, but aim to read the whole Bible in its whole, because as he said, a lot of Christians, as he mentions here in the middle of this, this quote, a lot of Christians can suffer from unbalanced views of truth. Where, where does that, where do you find that perhaps? Perhaps in elevating the love of God and minimizing his wrath. These unbalanced approaches, these unbalanced views of truth happen so often because the Bible has never been systematically read from cover to cover. Another writer by the name of James Gray writes this, many of the books of the Bible have a single thread running through the whole, a pivotal idea which all the subsidiary ones resolve, revolve. And to catch this thread, to seize upon the idea, is absolutely necessary to unravel or break up the whole in its essential parts. There's the scarlet thread that runs through this foundational argument that runs through books of the Bible. And to, to deal with the, the uh, 
pieces of each book, it's so important to, to grasp what that scarlet thread is. 13, the most important ones. Once we come back next Sunday, we'll look through the remaining ones. And my prayer for you as you begin this year is that you will have a hunger for Scripture, unlike ever before, and that you will put into place a a realistic and yet ambitious plan for knowing God this coming year, learning more about Him through your reading of Scripture. If you have any questions, don't hesitate to talk to Rodney or to me, to one of the other elders uh, here in commission. We'd be glad to give you some additional counsel. May you have a blessed week. You are dismissed.